You're on the panel on RNZ National. Lovely to have your company. Uh, Wallace Chapman with Simon Wilson and Palmjeet Pamar. This first annual inflation has plunged to 6.7% after prices rose just 1.2% in the three months to the end of March. Has inflation peaked? New data from StatsNZ shows inflation was 6.7%. The drop in inflation was much larger than economic forecasters had been expecting. StatsNZ Consumer Prices Manager Nicola Groudon said that despite the overall drop, inflation was still at levels not seen since the 1990s. Food price inflation has been in double figures for months and recorded a 12.1% annual increase in the year to March, the biggest jump since 1989. So looking at this, let's take a look uh, with senior economist at Kiwi Bank, uh, Mary Jo Vigara. Kia ora, Mary. Kia ora. Past the peak, inflation down to 6.7%. Some banks had been expecting the rate to come in at, uh, what, around 7.1%. What's your take? Yeah, unfortunately, we were one of those banks. We were expecting inflation to be stuck at that 7% level. Um, But this is a good report. Um, I think inflation, there's clear signs that inflation has peaked. I was getting a little jealous seeing that economies offshore had seen the peak in their inflation. But that is something we're now seeing in our own own data now. Uh, The biggest surprise really came from the imported inflation side, where you saw a pretty steep fall in tradables inflation. Is this happening around, because you ought to have been looking around the world, is this happening around the world as well? I see the UK still, I think it's, a, their inflation runs at, I think, 10.1%. It is still pretty sticky, and I think that's just, you know, a function of the environment that we're in. Um, domestic inflation is still pretty strong. I mean, it, it accelerated for us, but I think there's enough disinflation momentum, at least for us, to see that um, inflation is heading in the right direction. Mary, we have a panel with us. They'll want a sort of a question or a thought or a comment on this. Parmajit, let's bring you in. Yeah, so uh, what do you think should be our next step? Because at the moment, what I'm thinking, we are going quite one-dimensional um, in this um, case with uh, increasing the OCR. And obviously that will that will have an impact by reducing demand. But that is a solution that will create problem before it will solve the actual problem. Um, what I mean is that uh, it will reduce demand, but then by reducing demand, it might also negatively impact some industries, like, for example, construction is an industry that is always talked about when it comes to inflation. Then if the demand for houses reduces because the mortgage um, interest rate is going to be higher, then construction industries are going to collapse, and obviously you know, employment in the sector is going to be affected. So do you think my view is that we are going quite one-dimensional in this um, in this um in trying to solve this problem. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, um, with inflation, it's running so high, the Reserve Bank is responding and trying to bring it down. And the way they're doing that is by raising interest rates. The intended effect is to dampen demand. In the construction industry, for example, demand is running well above supply and they're capacity constrained, and that's generating a lot of inflation. And so in the Reserve Bank's, um, you know, in terms of what they think, they need to bring demand down, and they do that by raising interest rates. The good thing is, though, that after today's report, I'm feeling pretty confident that inflation has peaked, and that should mean that interest rates have peaked. Um, we still think the Reserve Bank has one more rate hike to deliver in May, but they, we do think that they are getting nearer to the end of their tightening cycle. Do you, Mary Jo, do you, do you think that this means that that one more rate hike is no longer, should no longer happen? Well, we've always said that, you know, they could pause at 5%. Um, you know, that was sort of, you know, yesterday's move. But 
Um, we've already seen so much tightening come through in such a short amount of time, and it's yet to really take effect on the real economy. But, you know, the Reserve Bank is clearly determined to bring down inflation. And because we hadn't yet seen the evidence that inflation had peaked, they do seem committed to bringing another rate hike. But I think we are, after today's report, uh, more confident that they are near the end of their current tightening cycle. So what are the other other um, options that we have? Because there are other domestic policies, isn't it, that have yeah, an I mean, impact? For, yeah, for the Reserve Bank, they have quite a limited suite. Um, you know, the OCR is really their main policy instrument, um, lifting interest rates to influence interest rates across the economy. I mean, outside of Reserve Bank, sorry. Yeah, so the government has yeah. leaders, Government, exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the government, um, well, you know, the, we do have the budget coming up. Um, it will be interesting yeah. to see how that, mm. how that plays out. Um, it could, you know, lean towards the inflationary side, given that it'll be a cycle and rebuild um, focus. Um, but for the Reserve Bank's perspective, um, I think today's report is, is a good one. Um, and, you know, interest rates, I think, have peaked. Nonetheless, there is that cost issue, isn't there? I'll come to you, Simon. But you, I think you mentioned, Mary Jo, uh, you said that New Zealanders were almost $5,000 worse off than they were at the beginning of 2021 when the cost of living began to bite. Do you want to explain that a bit? Yeah, well, we are living in a, we have a you know cost of living crisis. That's when wage inflation isn't rising as fast as consumer price inflation. Wage inflation, though, is a lagging indicator. We still think that there's more for it to go. You know, it could it could peak at around 4.5%. Ah. Um, but... You know, we, we are yet to see, you know, the labour market is still very tight. There's still upward pressure on wages. Um, but, you know, we, we do expect it to rise. But we are still living in that cost of living crisis, just given how high consumer prices have risen. Right. So a bit of a lag on that one, Simon. I'm just wondering whether we um, need to be panicking a little less about this. If inflation uh, is falling, uh, it hasn't risen to the extent that people thought it was going to, that we were told it was going to, and therefore we needed the tough interest rate medicine uh, to supposedly bring things under control. Major, do you have a view of why economists couldn't get this closer to the, to the facts? Yeah, you know, forecasting is difficult in expensive <laughs> times. And, um, it's yeah, but you're paid the money. <laughs> it's been particularly difficult with this COVID era. You know, you've seen swings in both directions. Um, but I'm happy to say, I, I'm happy to be wrong on this on this occasion. I'm happy that it came well below our On forecast. the right side of wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm happy that it came well below our forecast. Um, I'm pleased to see that inflation has peaked. Yep. And as well below um, the 7.3% peak. Yeah. Now, it also raises questions you've touched on it, but whether the Reserve Bank may have engaged in a bit of overkill, uh, kind of echoing Simon's points there, when it raised the official cash rate by 50 basis points to 5.25% earlier this month. Uh, do you have any view on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll, we won't know really, and until we are at the sort of at the other side of it, um, they do enter. They, you know, they go back to the drawing board in May with a much softer starting point as they've done before. So I think, I think they'll be pleased as, as well as we are that they're sort of on the wrong side of uh, of the forecast. But um, it just shows that uh, inflation peaks, and um, I think we are nearing the end of this tightening chapter. And hopefully opening up another one later on. Mary Jo Vergara, Senior Economist at Kiwi Bank. Kia ora. Thank you uh, for your time. Nonetheless, it's going to be uh, all about cost, isn't it, this year? Uh, you Pamji, keep a close eye uh, on uh, the mood, the election, such like. You've got food and f- food price inflation, double yeah. figures for the months. 
you know, fruit and veggie, the largest contributors to food prices, up 86 and 11% respectively. Uh, These are really big pressures for households, aren't they, around the panel? They absolutely are. And and Mary Jo just before mentioned the, what did she call it, the the, uh, wage pressure, Mm. uh, pressure from rising wages. Let's talk about pressure from rising profit levels in some of the big um, industries, and particularly supermarkets. I know there's an argument that the return on their investment, uh, that the amount of profit they make in relation to the the revenue turnover isn't that high, but the reality is they are making record profits at a time when it has not been tougher for ordinary New Zealanders for many, many years, and there is something seriously out of whack with that. Mm. Okay, so around the panel, you've given us a um, bit of a quick fix or a a, a practical solution on uh, buses, Um, you know, uh, AT pay for Uber if your bus doesn't come. Do either of you have any um, quick solutions for those people who go to the supermarket and go, oh, my goodness me, I'm finding it hard to fill the basket with fresh fruit and vegetables when the broccoli or, in fact, the cauliflower is really quite high, a bit too high, I'm just going to keep it in the supermarket. I think the impact of the interest rate rise is the latest one. We will see in maybe in the next two to three months. It's too soon to say if that has already impacted families. And the the uh, solution for your question, I would yeah. say, is the supply chain. That's another thing that we need to really work on, the supply chain. Um, How, yes, so? For, How so? so it, yeah, international supply chains, I know they, it's settling a little bit. But I think we need to still do a bit more work on that. And then local uh, people, those who are producing, um, we need to really support them. What about the GST of fruit and veggies? Uh, I'm not a big fan of that, only because it's very hard to hold, you know, uh, people to account that they have taken GST off that, that price because you won't know if they have already built that into the price. It will be really hard for them to prove that. This is this is the new prize because we have taken GST off. That that is that is an issue, but I don't think it's a big enough issue myself. I think yes, GST off fruit and vegetables is a really good idea uh, because it would help. And I, the other thing is that, I mean, you know, these things are always really hard. But yeah. if you if you decide what you're going to cook for dinner and you go to the shop and want to buy the the ingredients in there. They're the more expensive ones. Buy something else. It's that you know. It's, it's that thing of, yep. and I'm sure everybody who's on a on a on a tough budget knows all those. Yeah, things. indeed. Yeah, but shopping smart. Yeah. Eighteen past four. Uh, the panel: uh, Simon Wilson, Panjit Pamar, with me. Well, officers. Uh, other big news today: officers serve the public well in the face of at times extreme provocation albeit isolated incidences of potentially excessive force by police. That's what the Independent Police Conduct Authority, the IPCA, has found in its 200-page report into police actions during the three-week-long illegal occupation of the Beehive. You'll recall that the 23-day anti-government protest ended in a riot. Fires were lit. Bricks hurled when police ejected the occupiers uh, on March the 2nd. Now, the report found almost all officers exercised professionalism and respect Restraint, dealing with a level of public disorder rarely seen in New Zealand. But it also found a number of faults by police. It said some officers were not given enough protective gear on that final day, resulting in a number of staff injuries. Other issues um, included deploying trainee and recent graduate officers with little training. And it also said issues collecting evidence during the two mass arrests meant many charges had to be dropped. So quite a bit in there with us is Dr. Suze Wilson from Massey University, who has commented on both the protest, its ongoing legacy and expertise and leadership. Dr. Wilson, kia ora. 
Wallace Kira panellists. Pretty pretty dense 200-page report there. Nonetheless, um, on first read, what do you make of the findings? Um, I haven't got through all through all 200 mm. pages, but I think you know it's clear that that what the um, investigators have sought to do is is be careful about not engaging in hindsight bias and looking at things that we know now that weren't knowable at the time, which is really important in conducting this kind of stuff. And they've also understood, I think, just how complex and difficult the situation was and, and that, you know, perfection wasn't realistic. So I think, you know, overall there's kind of a, a level of nuance and pragmatism uh, in their analysis about these these are some things that were done well, these are some things that could be improved next time, but this was a really difficult and unusual yeah. Situation. Yes, make oh. very clear in that report too, isn't it? And uh, I'll bring in our panelists soon. But look, you, you, you've in your research, you focus on leadership, and just another angle here: did the leadership respond adequately, appropriately? Recall there were messages from the protesters: all we want is for someone to talk to us. Would the flames have been settled a little bit if that happened? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that a number of people in, in government have lost sleep you know, considering all of that stuff. So there probably wasn't, you know, a perfect solution to this. I mean, it, it's, it's quite clear that one of the really distinctive features of this protest is the extent to which so many of its participants were really a long way down the rabbit hole of, of disinformation and conspiracy thinking. And, you know, when people are, if you like, detached from from facts and evidence, it is really hard to engage with them. And, you know, the nature of kind of conspiratorial conspiratorial thought is quite extreme. You know, it, it kind of poses that, you know, there's this kind of um, evil elite that is, you know, out to kill us all. And that therefore kind of motivates people to engage in quite extreme action. And, you know, right from day one, you know, the, the threats of violence towards politicians, towards government officials, towards scientists... We're there in, in all the kind of the, the placards and the noose and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, as a, as a general rule of thumb, we don't expect governments to negotiate right. with those that are threatening to, okay. to kill them. Palm Jeet. Yeah. Um, I, I totally agree with your comments, uh, Dr. Seuss, that it was quite provoking and those threats of violence. In that regard, if I look at the report, the most concerning thing uh, to me was that uh, police officers didn't have enough uh, protective gear or equipment and uh, they deployed some trainee uh, police officers there. So that was the most concerning thing uh, for me. And is there something that you would point as the most concerning thing for you in, in the report if you had to pick? one top topic? I think from a, a leadership perspective, it's probably um, the fact that there was intelligence um, that the police had in the days leading up to the convoy to to give some sense that potentially there was a possible occupation being considered. Um, certainly, you know, the, the very label of a convoy was, was if you like, appropriated from... Um, protests that were happening at that time in Australia and Canada where where kind of occupation tactics were, were used. Um, and the report discusses how that, that, that intelligence was all there. It wasn't necessarily clear to the police that an occupation was planned, but it was possible. 
and perhaps some more preemptive kind of work with the council in terms of road closure and traffic management might have been able right. to prevent prevent the occupation. Okay. So mm-hmm. I think I think for me that's a pretty important learning. And then yes, making sure that your staff are taken care of and protected. Yeah, I've I, um, for some time thought, Susie, you're quite right there, that uh, if, they'd, if they'd blocked Molesworth Street on day one, it might have been a very different outcome. But I wanted to ask you about the future for the rest of this year. For, for, are there lessons in this report and what we know about that protest uh, that we need to be learning, the police and political parties and the public need to be learning going into an election, how we're going to conduct our democracy? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, while it's tempting to just see this as a a protest against the Labour government's mandate policy, that was certainly the kind of core motivation, what we have to understand is that there are some New Zealanders now who are deeply enmeshed in in conspiratorial worldviews and and disinformation, that that is leading them to be profoundly trustful of any source of authority, um, and that that poses a challenge to all our political parties. And so, you know, my hope is that across the board, people will understand that that disinformation poses a threat to democracy generally, regardless of whatever party political affiliation people might have, and that all parties, you know, need to kind of come together and try and reinforce that actually, you know, what holds democracy together is our capacity to engage in reason-based debate, um, to not engage in in threats of violence uh, with those that we disagree with, um, and to try and uphold that that kind of principle with their own supporters um, so that, you know, their supporters aren't using those tactics to attack the opposition parties and they're just kind of turning a blind eye. Very good to have you on the program, Dr. Wilson. Kia ora. Thanks uh, for your time today. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Suze Wilson from Mass University, been following the protests, an expert in leadership, uh, and uh, certainly uh, big news today that IPCA report. 26 past four, the panel, we've got Palmjit Pamar, we've got Simon Wilson today. Now, what about this? My kids said I'd be cancelled. They were right, said Stephen Jack, who's resigned as the National Party candidate for Tari. He shared a poem on Facebook, which compared then-Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern to Hitler. The poem contains the lines, Just as Hitler had the SS, our Prime Minister's on the job, she's given up the police and bought the mongrel mob. So, Wallace, to be clear, he thinks he's been cancelled. He's the victim here, is that what he's saying? Well, that's what he's, he, he's, that's the quote. Uh, mm. My kids said I'd be cancelled, though were right, says Stephen Jack. Now, in National MP Erica Stansford says Jack's sharing of the poem was unacceptable, and on Sunday it was reported by stuff that Jack had also shared a sexist joke uh, in 2021. Uh, Nicola Willis, uh, the deputy leader, called that joke disgusting. Won't bother sharing that one. But around the panel on this, and guess who we've got? Palmjeet Pamar. Uh, ideally having you on the panel because I understand, are you not vying for selection yourself? So um, I'm, I'm, not, vi- I'm not a candidate. No. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so no, and those, um, I haven't seen those comments myself on social media, but I did see first time uh, that was a column written by Andrea once, and that's when, when I became aware of those comments, I mean, sharing of those posts, that's totally unacceptable, and it's really good that he has resigned. Hmm. What's the selection process like, give us an insight. 
having gone through it? So after the last election, there was a big review of um, selection uh, process, and it is actually quite a tight process, but things can still slip through, and that's what we are seeing here. What do you mean by a tight process? Give us more it's, information. How does it happen? Speeches? Uh, yes, yeah, so what happens is once Tell you me. apply, um, then the the board goes through all your background information. So you have to agree to them going through all your background information, do all sorts of checks, and they have a third party that gets involved as well. And after that, you go through an interview process where you're shortlisted. And if it's a delegate process where the membership is more than 200, then you go and do speeches and members actually select their candidate. You, don't you also do a kind of round of the delegates, endless morning teas and, and <laughs> that's, so on? That's part of it. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah. A, so you so go around and meet everybody it's, who's it's going a, to vote. Yeah, and, that's yeah. just the main thing of democratic mm. process mm. because it's about going and convincing people to vote for you. So if there are, so in the National Party, the rule is that if there are more than five people applying for that electorate, the, uh, the board will have to um, shortlist five people. Mm. So they have to bring it down to five. And then all those five people, I mean, unless there is something they find dodgy and then it can be less than five, but maximum has to be five. And then these people go around uh, convincing delegates why delegates should be voting for them. And then there are speeches. Right. And then there is a final voting process where the members actually vote for their Okay. Their what do you make of that, well, Simon, I, I, and compare that to Labour? I've always um, thought uh, National's democratic process that you've just outlined is, is, is pretty good. There is no perfect way to do democracy, and the obvious weakness of the National process uh, is that if you've got a whole bunch of people who all think the same way and don't think there's a problem making jokes about the Prime Minister and comparing her to Adolf Hitler or don't think there's a problem being sexist or whatever, then that's all going to be a self-reinforcing thing. So but that, depends if they saw those comments and if they were aware of those comments before well, so the selection that, that's process. that's another issue that's there another about issue. What, the, exactly. what the scrutiny and the vetting yeah, the scru- process the, is. the scrutiny yeah. and the vetting. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the Labour Party, as I understand yeah. it. Compare, um, compare ha, the Labour Party ha, ha, to the... To the so yeah. there's more, there's meant to be more head office uh, influence in, in the Labour Party process. Um, But if you look at uh, Mount Albert electorate, which recently chose Helen White as its candidate, she was strongly favoured in the local electorate by the local members. The the rival candidate was Camilla Balich. They're both MPs, both list MPs. And it was understood that Camilla Balich was more favoured by head office. But Helen White won the nomination. So you can't argue that one of them is just a head office process and the other one is just mm. a, just a, a local process. Uh, and I've seen national party selections uh, where the membership wasn't strong enough. Um, so uh, the head, when that happens, the head office steps that's in and, and, that's and right. has a so, bigger so role. That's and called the board selection. That's, that's right. That's right. And, and that... that um, so it depends, yeah. Too. So yes. if, if the membership is less than 200, then it's the board's role to select the candidate. So basically it's an interview process where after that interview process, the board, uh, along with the electorate chair um, or, and regional chair, will decide who the candidate is. Okay, so, it's so fair, it's a, Simon, it's a fair process. Oh, I, I so yeah, The process is a fair, that's right. Um, but as I say, you, there's, no, there's no perfect way to yeah. do these things. There's no yeah. foolproof yeah. process. Yeah. The, the problem that National had in 2020 and was, you know, well publicised at that time, and is meant to have been um, kind of ironed out or weeded out of the party, was a kind of culture process. Yeah. Okay, so on that, and, what do you make of that? And, uh, and, is there is there kind of those things take time? Yeah. I what about I, the culture aspect of a national? Is there something that they're missing or need to work on? Panjit Pamar, your honest opinion? Yeah. So it's a very open process. So it's advertised. 
people can apply whoever likes they can apply yes there is a basic criteria you have to fulfill that criteria you should be eligible to apply once you have applied you are in the race so it's then up to you to prove that you are the person who should be picked but what i would say is that it is also the responsibility of nominees or people those who are applying because at the end of the day it's not embarrassing only the party but it's also bringing embarrassment to the individual and their family why would you put yourself through if you have something that will come out and will bite you and the party i just don't understand that bit well, I think um, the answer is that people don't understand it's going to bite them. Exactly. And they don't, and, and either they because they don't know about it when they should have mm. or um, they don't think it's a problem until it's yeah. pointed if out I in went public. Through Facebook, it's a problem. If I went through five years of Facebook, Facebook on your, what would I find? <laughs> <laughs> a very decent, hard-working Ponzi farmer, <laughs> always committed with, to... With <laughs> proud photos of her backyard. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Coming okay. soon, coming soon. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. We'll, so, we'll have yeah. a look. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're on the um, panel on RNZ National. We have Simon Wilson and Palmjit Pamar. It's time for headlines.